Morning, church. Hey, today's a great day because we get to wrap up Mark. So sorry it took so long, but it's, it's a joy just to go verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. Uh, due to our time and the extended passage, I'm going to jump right in and, and begin our sermon. The title of this morning's message is The End of the Beginning, Part 3. The End of the Beginning, Part 3. Because we know that the end of Jesus' life, that's where Mark leaves off. The end of Jesus' life is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the gospel. It's just the beginning. We know there's the resurrection. But beyond the resurrection, we know that the gospel continues through the book of Acts. The gospel continues as the church is built. The gospel continues as we proclaim stories of redemption. The gospel will continue in heaven Not so much saving people, but as all of us proclaim that we are saved. Why? Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. But it's because of the Lamb who was slain for us in our place. He died. And so the gospel continues. We are going to start today by looking at Mark 15, verse 47. That's where we left off a couple weeks ago. So if you have God's word, please take it and turn there. And um, as you're turning there... I'm just going to kind of keep talking because we're really short on time today. Okay, so Mark 15, verse 47. Today we're going to see three things that characterize the end of Mark's gospel. Three things. And I'll give these to you once again as we go along, so don't worry about getting them all down now. Okay, first we're going to see the astonishment of the woman. Mark gives us the perspective, the woman's perspective of the empty tomb account. Mark writes it from the perspective of the faithful woman disciples whom we introduced a couple weeks ago. So the first thing we're going to see is the astonishment of the woman. The second thing we're going to see is the abruptness, the abruptness of Mark's ending. It is abrupt. It is sudden. It's an unexpected way to end a gospel. And the third thing we're going to see is the addendum to Mark's gospel, not written by Mark added later, but there needs needs to be some explanation there. So we're going to see astonishment, abruptness, and addendum. Three A's, once again. So Mark 15, verse 47. Here's where we left off. So we're following these women. We introduced them last time. These are the faithful women disciples of Jesus. The male disciples are all scattered. Now Mark does not tell us that John was there at the cross, but he's not mentioned, but that's just one. We knew that last time we introduced that there were other characters. There was Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus up to the hill of Calvary. There was Joseph of Arimathea, the Jewish religious leader, a member of the Sanhedrin who secretly believed in Christ. And in the moment of testing, he exercised courage. And he said, no, my Savior, my Lord, will not be buried among the criminals. And so we sung that he was buried in Joseph's tomb. So so Joseph, the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, asked for Jesus' body. And it was in Joseph's tomb that Jesus' body was rightly and properly laid. And it was on that Friday night, so it's Friday, that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, and there are other women that Mark doesn't record that were there, they saw where Jesus was laid. This is important, important, because apologetically it flies in the face of secular critics who say the, the woman went to the wrong tomb. No, no, they knew which tomb 
this was. They saw where the body was laid. But narratively, I want you to think emotionally. Have you ever been to Rose Hills or Forest Lawn? Have you experienced the grieving process or the process of, of someone you love passing away and you're just going through the emotions? What happens? You're saying goodbye. You're saying, wow, you know, you're going through memories. Wow, life is so short. And you start to remember all those beautiful times, all those beautiful occasions, this memory. that I remember when we went to Disneyland together. You know, I remember when, when I ate grandma's uh, food or grandpa's food. I remember when my grandparents walked me down that, down that uh, road right there by the beach. And all these memories, and you're like, man, I'm saying goodbye, and you're processing. Right? So think of this is what's happening. They saw Jesus die. They saw how he breathed his last. And they saw where he was laid. So in their minds, there's one thing that's certain is that Jesus truly died. That's Friday. Now Saturday, the women go home. And there's some stuff that's pretty important that the women don't have the information to. If they did, they would be going to the tomb in a different way. But there are some important things that happen that Matthew records. In Matthew 27, it tells us that the religious leaders, they're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. But the religious leaders, the hypocrites, they go to Pilate. And they ask Pilate, they said, this man said that he's going to rise again. So just to make sure that the disciples don't go and steal his body, that's what they're going to... So, so you see that the religious leaders beat the secular atheist to this theory, that the religious leaders said they're going to steal his body. So Pilate sent some soldiers. We need a guard and seal the tomb. And Pilate says, what does Pilate say? Pilate says, no, no, you have your own soldiers. That's how the ESV and the NAS and the New King James renders it, right? Take a, that you have your own guard. You have your own guard. Take them and guard it. So the temple guard go with Pilate's permission and they seal the temple. And, the, and there's this heavy stone that's rolled that's, that's blocking. Uh, I mean, they seal the tomb, not the temple. But the temple guards are sealing the tomb. So all of this is happening. The women don't know this. Otherwise, they would be asking, who's going to fight off the guards? How are we going to move? Instead, they're asking, right, on their way, they're asking, who's going to move the stone for us? Because what they also don't have is what happens in the beginning of Matthew 28. Is that they don't know that God is working behind the scenes. And God sends this powerful localized earthquake. Which means this earthquake is only in this special vicinity, which the women somehow don't know. That it shook up the place and that an angel came out of heaven rolled the stone aside, sat on the stone. And also what it says, notice in Matthew 20, it says that the appearance of the angel scared the life out of these soldiers that they became like dead men. Keyword, like dead men. The angel didn't kill them. So what does it mean they became like dead men? I don't know. But, the, but later in Matthew 28, it says that these soldiers were able to go back and report back to the religious leaders what happened, which means all we know is that they were neutralized. So all of this is important. The women don't know this, but this is how when they get to the tomb, the tomb is rolled open, they see the angel there, where are the guards? The guards aren't stopping them. Why? Because they're frozen like dead men. They're neutralized. Right? So the women, the women arrive, and that's where we pick up. 
today. The astonishment of the woman. Mark 16, if you're not there, would you turn there? Mark 16. This is Sunday, and we see that in verse 2 where it says, and very early on the first day of the week. But let me read this to you. Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, so the Sabbath is Saturday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. They want to prepare his body for final burial. Verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, because they didn't see all of the events that Matthew records, they said, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw that a young man, an angel, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, this is the right tomb. Yes, you came to the right place. Yes, I know who you are seeking, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, the place where you saw where he was laid. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, tell his disciples and Peter, That he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. That's our point, right? Astonishment. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The term astonishment captures the complete reversal of their emotions. Going up to the tomb, they expected one thing. Because on Friday night, they saw where his body was laid. And once again, that's like all the mental, emotional process of what it takes to grieve and to come to grips with reality that someone you love has died. Now, they love Jesus. That's why they were going up to the tomb in the first place. They were going up to the tomb because they loved Christ. And this was their final act of devotion to Jesus. If we could just just take all these expensive spices and if we could just kind of prepare his body with wonderful fragrances so that so that he could be ready for burial. Right? That's their act of love. And what Mark doesn't tell us is a couple things. Mark doesn't tell us that Mary Magdalene traveled alone and she was the first one to the tomb. That's recorded in John 20, verse 1, right? Uh, Mark also doesn't tell us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also among these women. So I just want you to imagine that, yeah, Mary Magdalene probably ran there herself. But think about these women. Think about what happened. It's, it's the first Easter, but they don't know yet that it's Easter. It's the very fir- early in the morning, before the sun rises, Some of them probably rendezvoused and gathered at a certain place and said, let's walk together. And as they're journeying up to the tomb, I want you to just imagine their conversations. How do you remember someone? How do you talk about a loved one who's passed away? Some of the women are probably sharing stories about Jesus, his powerful teaching, his encouraging touch, how he saved them. 
Now, if, if Jesus' mom was among them, could you imagine that? How enduring is this? Jesus' mom probably recounting a story or two about Jesus as a baby boy, then Jesus as an adolescent, and then Jesus as a carpenter, and then, and then the grief of a mother seeing their, 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 her son and all you know, crucified, tortured, and all the women empathizing the way the women do. They probably were hugging each other, probably encouraging each other, walking alongside of each other. There were probably mixed emotions. Some of these women may be angry, may be bitter at the Jewish religious leaders for their corruption and their evil. How could they make up these lies? Maybe some of these women comforting the mother of Jesus, saying it's so wrong what the Romans did to Jesus. He was righteous. Just think of all of those emotions. And then you can better understand why when they get up there and they realize that Jesus is not only not there, but there's this angel, and the sight of the angel alone will terrify you, that all of a sudden they are astonished. Because it's like preparing your emotions to go through grief, then all of a sudden you realize that Jesus is is risen. You don't just immediately go to joy. Right? There, There is this... This moment that needs to pass. This moment of, can this be real? Can this be true? Is this, how can a human being rise from the dead? Wait a minute, he talked about it. Could this be true? I mean, what is happening here? Where's Jesus? Where's his body? I was prepared to meet a dead man. I was prepared to to pour spices over his body, and here he's not here. And there's this emotional upheaval, and then the joy comes. And that's why for a moment they are frozen. They are terrified. They are afraid. They are in shock. Just a million emotions going through their heart at once. Try to understand these women, and the one word that will capture their response to the empty tomb is astonishment. Astonishment. Notice verses 5 to 6 once again. Mark doesn't identify this young man as, as an angel. He just says young man. But his description is clear that this is an, an angelic being. Now notice verse 7. Notice that this angel gives them instructions. And the beauty of these instructions. This is the gospel. This is the gospel right here. That he's not here. He's risen. Go and tell people that he's not dead. Go and tell people that he's risen. But I want you to tell his disciples and and Peter. Now highlight the words and Peter in your minds. Just think about that. Right? Isn't Peter one of the disciples? I thought Peter was one of the disciples. So why doesn't Mark... And why doesn't the angel just say, hey, woman, disciples, go tell the 12, go tell his disciples that he's not here, that he's risen. Why and Peter? Because naturally, Peter would see himself as, man, you you guys know Peter's personality, hard on himself, quick to speak, can't back it up. Peter's probably ashamed of himself. Peter's Peter's probably like, I'm not one of his disciples. He's not talking to me. Peter probably said, I betrayed Christ. Jesus doesn't want to see me. Jesus doesn't want to see me. Yeah, yeah, go go tell his other disciples. I'm not worthy to be his disciple. That's probably Peter's response. And so the angel's very clear. No, no, no. Tell the disciples that Jesus wants to see them. And go tell Peter too. 
Go tell Peter that Jesus is not here. He's risen from the dead, and he's, he's going ahead of you. Now, that's beautiful. Because it doesn't, that kind of gives you the idea that, that it's not like, hey, go tell his disciples that Jesus wants to see them. He's going to rebuke them. Right? Instead, it's Jesus is going before you. He had to go before you. And he's going to be waiting for you there. He's going to meet you there. Now, think of, of, of a worldly perspective. Think of how we think as human beings. Think of what the disciples did. The women disciples are here receiving the gospel, receiving the message from the angel, right? They are there, but the male disciples are scattered. So if you think from a worldly perspective, if Jesus was a worldly king, you would think it's completely right for him if he were to say, go tell those faithless, cowardly disciples, especially Peter, go tell that coward, that who denied me, go tell them that I've risen like I said I would. And go tell them they will have no part in my kingdom. Go tell Paul George, yeah, how's it like Damon Lillard sinking that, that three over your face, right? You should have joined the Lakers. It could have been you and LeBron right now, and maybe you guys would have made the playoffs. Right? Go tell, go, go tell Paul George, he joined the wrong team, him and Westbrook, you know, just chilling there back in OKC or in Cancun now. Right? Go tell them. That's how we think. That's how we think. Right? In your face kind of mentality. But that's what makes Jesus such an amazing king. Is that Jesus says, no, 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 go tell them. And go tell Peter. Go tell them that I want to meet him and I want to restore him. Now notice the response of the woman in the first part of verse 8. It says, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. What does it mean to be seized? It it means that they're being controlled for the moment. They can't even move. But then they run out of fear. And they're trembling because this, this emotion of astonishment, like I said, just reversal of complete expectations. All of your emotions are doing a 180. You went from grieving and pain and sadness to surprise and shock. And you haven't even seen Jesus yet. You've just seen this angelic being telling you he's not there. And so they're trembling and they run. And so once again, what happens when you're gripped by the reality of the resurrection? Your emotional response is A song of emotional reversal. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Right? Could this be true? Is this true? If this is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the Son of God. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Then, oh, church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Our God, can it be true that he's not dead? Can it be true? Oh my goodness, it is true. There's a moment that sinks in. It is true. He's alive. He's alive. Christ is risen from the dead. This amazing, awestruck astonishment. And then, after that, fear. Because that's what happens when you face God. Every individual in the Bible who's ever come face to face with a theophany responds in fear, reverent, holy fear, supernatural fear, because these things aren't natural. People don't rise from the dead. Angels don't show up at people's graves 
and, and start giving instructions. It's just an amazing reality that happens. You don't see guards just kind of frozen in their place. Right? All of this creates fear in a holy, reverent way. And the crazy thing is that's how Mark ends his gospel. And guess what? That doesn't sit well with people because it's so abrupt of an ending. So the point number two is the abruptness, abruptness, the abruptness of Mark's ending. Notice the last part of of verse 8 of chapter 16. Notice what it says. It says, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Wait a minute. The women are disobedient. So it seems, and we know they're not. Right? But the way the Mark pens this, it's almost like the angel said, hey, go and tell the disciples, and go and tell Peter. Go and tell them. And notice what it says. It says, and, and the woman said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You really? You're going to end like that? They were afraid? They disobeyed and they were afraid? That's how you're going to end, Mark? And so from the pen of Mark, it gives us this notion that the women were disobedient. But we know that's not the end of the story. So what exactly happened to the ending of Mark, right? Unlike the other gospel accounts, Mark doesn't record more on the resurrection. He doesn't record Jesus reuniting with his disciples, but that is in the other gospels. Mark doesn't, does not record that the woman does eventually, after moving through the shock and the, and the fear, eventually does tell the disciples and Peter. Uh, they, they don't, Mark doesn't record the restoration of Peter. His last words are simply, they were afraid. And so there have been several theories that have been proposed. Some believe that Mark, Mark's ending got lost, like it got tore off. They used to roll up scrolls, and the end of the scroll might be at the top of the scroll. And so that part got lost. You can't find it. But my question is, God is sovereign over the preservation of his scriptures. If God wanted the church to have his word, why would he allow it to be lost and not found? The only people who are lost are us, and we've been found in Christ. Right? So, so at the end of the day, if, if God wanted us to have it, it wouldn't be lost. Others say, well, Mark was under persecution, so he's like, he couldn't finish it. They were afraid, and so am I. I'm out, right? Well, once again, if God wants his word to get out, look, the book of Revelation was written while John was in exile. Paul wrote many letters from prison. So if God wanted his word to get out, persecution and fear cannot stop the pen of the Holy Spirit. So I don't think that it was lost. That's a bad theory. Okay, I don't think that Mark didn't finish because of persecution. Again, a bad theory because we believe in the sovereign preservation of the Spirit-inspired Word. I believe that all we have is, ver- is the ending at verse 8 because the Holy Spirit intended the pen of Mark to stop at 8. That's it. The Mark purposely said, said they were afraid. And so there are three things that we have to know. Right, about why Mark would end at verse 8. Number one, first, by the time Mark's gospel is written and circulated, the news had already spread about his resurrection. And it was already well communicated verbally. In the New Testament world of scholarship, they call this oral tradition. Which means back then, they didn't have a printing press. Not everybody had a personal copy of the Bible. Instead, news was spread through your mouth, verbally. 
And so most of the church and most of the people receiving Mark's gospel would have already heard the good news. They would have knew about the ending. Mark didn't have to supply the ending. Second, it's important to remember that Mark was not an original disciple. Did you know that? That John Mark, who wrote Mark, was not an original disciple. Who's his source? Can anybody tell me? Because we've said this before. Who's Mark's source? Shout it out. Luke? No, no. Who's Mark's source? Peter. And it's just like Peter to say, yeah, make everybody look bad because, you know, don't, no, no, my re- me reuniting? No, no, don't write anything about me. Make me look bad. We were all afraid. We were, none of us were there. All of us ran, right? That's Peter's personality. So even if Mark wanted to write all this good stuff about the disciples and all this good stuff about Peter, Peter was Mark's source. And it makes sense. It would make sense for Peter to tell Mark, no, no, tell her how it is. We were all afraid. Just that's how it ends. We were all afraid. But then there's a third, and this is the most important, is the theme of Mark, Mark 1.1. What does it say? Read it off the screen. Let's read it together. The beginning of the gospel of Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark sends you off with a message. There is a beginning to the gospel, but the gospel does not end. The gospel continues. The good news does not end. There is no closure. You want closure, reader. But this is not Harry Potter. This is the gospel, right? And so the gospel has no end because there is no closure to the good news because the good news continues. The good news goes through persecution. The the good news survives terrorism. The good news survives earthquakes. The good news survives secularism and liberalism. The good news survives anything and everything. And the good news reaches the people that God wants it to reach. And the good news will prevail. And the church will be built on this confession. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And there is no closure to the gospel because it continues. And that need for closure leads us to point number three, the addendum. So Mark's gospel was so abrupt. It was so abrupt. Doesn't sit well with people. So the addendum to Mark's ending is point number three, is that someone along the way, not Mark, decided, hey, we need to end this story. And they added verses 9 to 20. Okay? How many of you guys were familiar with this, that verses 9 to 20 weren't written by Mark? Okay, very good. Now, don't rip it out of your Bible, because then you'll rip out the beginning of Luke. Okay? So keep that in your Bible. But let me tell you why it's there, and let me tell you why you should keep it there. Okay? First, most of your Bibles, how many of your Bibles, if you don't have a ghetto Bible, has this? Okay? How many, raise your hand. How many of you guys have this? What does it say? It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 verses 9 to 20. Now let me, let me tell you why it's, why it's like that. Let me tell you how it went down back then. Back then, it's different from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written to be preserved. And so even when you think about the Ark of the Covenant, no, it's not about Indiana Jones, okay, it's about the Bible. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ten Commandments, it was preserved. It, it was watched over. And then it was put into a, a holy place, right? And then, and then even the reading of the Old Testament, the, the, the priest would read it. 
it wasn't so for the New Testament. The purpose of the New Testament is to get the message out the four walls and get the message to the, end of the ends of the earth. So Mark's gospel was original copy written, and then people would copy it, like scribes, because they didn't have a printing press. And they would distribute it, right? So, so let five years pass or something like that, and you got all these copies, hundreds of copies of Mark going out. And people are just copying and copying and pass it out, spreading the word. Someone along the way decided, hey, this ending is not complete. It's too abrupt. And so they added verses 9 to 20. And so then that thing starts getting copied. So now you've got two versions of Mark, or maybe even three versions of Mark going out. Right? You've got a shorter ending and a longer ending, and, and it's being copied left and right. Now, years have passed, and there came a day when, when all of the New Testament letters were complete, not just the Gospels, and then they had to decide, the council had to decide, okay, what books of the Bible are going to be included in the Bible, and what do we include? And when they closed the canon, what did they have? They had all these copies of Mark. So which one do you choose, the longer one or the shorter one? What's the safer option? You don't want to, like, erase God's word, right, because you're not sure. So what do you do? You just put the longer one. You put both and put a footnote like this. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's what they did, and that's why the longer one's in there. Right? But then later, there's something called technology. Any archaeologists in here? Any of you into archaeology? There's technology that you put a paper underneath, and it helps you date it. And so the nerds are able to look at these manuscripts, and they're, they're able to look at, wait, all of these ones are later, but the earliest manuscripts all don't contain verses 9 to 20. And then when you look at that, that's called external evidence. Say external evidence. External evidence. i got to talk to you like this because this is nerdy stuff. Okay? External evidence tells you that it wasn't written by Mark right? because of, of the scientific data. But then there's something called internal evidence. Say internal evidence. Now, internal evidence is studying the Greek literary patterns of a biblical author. And when you look at Mark, when you compare the literary patterns... Verses 9 to 20 is nothing like, like how Mark writes the rest of the gospel. So when you look at external evidence, internal evidence, both show that Mark didn't write it. So what do we do with this? Well, here's what you do with it. It's not bad. The content's not bad. It's just not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not bad content because except for verse 18, which is weird, everything else in verses 9 to 20 can be found in the rest of the gospels. Right? And in Acts, you can find it in Luke 24. You can find it at the end of Matthew, and you can find it at the end of John. So it's not bad stuff. So that's why just keep it there. Okay, just keep it there, because it's not bad. Just It's not written by the Holy Spirit. And that's why you have weird stuff like verse 18. Look at verse 18. What does it say? It says, they will pick up serpents with their hands. A serpent's like a snake, right? right? They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Go and apply God's word. You will die, okay? So, so clearly, this is not inspired by the Spirit. I don't know who wrote this, but don't try this at home. I mean, the only person I could even imagine who could do this that, that's not a biblical character is Kobe Bryant, right? You can imagine Kobe Bryant saying, you know, Black Mamba with, with a busted Achilles and everything, knock down two, two free throws, you know, drink the poison and not die. Besides Kobe, and I'm joking, I can't see anybody doing this. Please do not do this. Okay? And so verse 18 will already tell you this is not inspired by the Spirit. 
But here's the application. Number one, God preserves his word. And so the reason why you should keep in your Bible is because God in his sovereignty, if he wanted 9 to 20 just completely out, why did he allow all of our Bibles and, and, con, and uh, you know, consensus among church history just to have it here? Maybe because it's not all bad. So just read it. You know, just don't apply verse 18. And third, it reveals the deeper application for us. And the deeper application for us is when you read Mark up to 16 verse 8, you should feel that it's not complete. You should feel the abruptness, and it should lead you to say, you know what, the gospel must be applied in my life. And that leads to the big idea. This should be your response to chapter 16, verse 8. And I believe this is what the authorial intent is for why Mark ended with a cliffhanger, is the gospel of Jesus Christ does not end. It continues through our stories of redemption as we experience the power of his resurrection. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not end. It, con- it continues through our stories of redemption as we experience the power of his resurrection. It's not the end of the story. That's the application. When you read and you says they were afraid. Well, so were we. They were afraid. Wait a minute. This is not complete, Jesus. What do you want me to do with this gospel? Well, let the story find application in your life. right? That, That as we read the gospel, it ought to capture us. It ought to astonish us. And it ought to work itself out in our lives. So that we begin to write, not the Bible, but we begin to write our testimonies. Of, of how the Lord has transformed us. And the result is we go out and we live passion, we love passionately. We live authentically. We give generously and we go courageously because of the gospel. I want you to just think of the astonishment and, and what would bring this type of reverent fear and what our response should be. Consider the weight of sin. That's the mental picture of what Jesus bore upon the cross. And that should astonish you. Wait a minute, well, you haven't considered it yet, my brother or sister. Consider the weight of sin. To me and you, sin sometimes doesn't feel so weighty. But you know what happens? We all have sins, small sins and big sins. Sometimes it's the little sins that we don't recognize. The big sins are obvious, murder, you know, adultery. I mean, those are big sins. You know, it catches our attention. But it's the little sins, irritable spirit, bitterness, so it's anger. A complaining spirit. Right? What else? Lust that doesn't get dealt with over time. Pride. Little sins. And you know what those sins do to us? In the end, the weight of sin is too much for us to bear. It crushes us. But it's slow. It's like throwing little weights upon a person's shoulder. And over time, it becomes 200 pounds. It just crushes you. But you know what's worse? <clears throat> is that <clears throat> the weight of our sin it begins to crush those around us. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. Our anxiety, our constant anxious spirit, our constant complaining spirit, our constant anger, if that's something you struggle with, our pride, it starts to just throw little weights on our loved ones and the people around us. And over time, it crushes them. Now reverse that, and you look at Jesus. The world threw 
all of their weight on Jesus. Beneath the weight of all our big sins and our little sins, Jesus was crushed. But it did not crush him. It did not crush him. Because out of the grave, he came up. He rose. And if that doesn't astonish you and change your life, I don't know if you've experienced conversion. That is what the conversion story is. That's the gospel, right? Is that Jesus comes out. And then we sing the glory of God has defeated the night. The Son of God is risen. And then it's like Jesus coming to us and saying, I've risen, therefore, come awake, dead men and women who are crushed by sin. Come awake. Come and rise up from the grave spiritually and live for me. And that's where the story of Christ begins to become this wondrous, powerful mystery. And then we sing, come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could ever restrain him. All of, the, 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 all of our sins that crush us, that eventually crush everybody around us, unless we deal, deal with it, unless we run to Christ and allow Christ to restore us, no grave could restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. And, and his resurrection is a foretaste of our deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. So beloved, the story of Mark is that it is the beginning of the gospel, but the gospel does not end. The gospel continues in our lives, and it begins by us recognizing, okay, look, maybe I haven't committed the biggest sins, but over time, all my little sins means I'm a very, very big sinner, and my sin will crush me, and my sin is crushing others, and maybe I don't see this until I die, but I need Christ. Whoa, my sins didn't crush Christ. Therefore, he is my king and savior. I need to run to him. He is my anchor. I must be rooted in him. He is my all in all. He is my everything. Beloved, if you don't have Christ, turn to Christ now. Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago. He died for our sins. In our place, he stood. He hung, but he did not remain dead. The first Easter Sunday, God raised him from the dead. And if you want Christ, you can have him now. Your life will change. It's, it may not be overnight. You're still going to struggle. There's still going to be scars. There's still going to be pain. But you know that you can have hope. And that in time, he continues to build you up. And he rewrites your story. And he gives you a new story. And that's what we call a testimony. But Beloved, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the ending of Mark. As, as we are reminded of how astonishing it is that you died for our sins. Then, Lord, we read it and we see the abrupt ending. But that reminds us, Lord, that each of our lives is a unique addendum. That you didn't write it in there. But it's written in your books from before the foundation of the world. And that you've ordained all the days of our lives. And in each and every one of our lives, there's a story of redemption. Of how your blood covers us. 
and how your power restores us and how you make us new. So Lord, bring us before the wondrous mystery of the cross and help us to behold today our Savior. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you love us more than we know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.